verse 37 down through verse number 41. And we'll see uh, the end result here of what happened on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Let's look at verse 37. The Bible says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, uh, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And uh, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. Now, you've been going to church a while. You've heard this verse. You've heard this idea of 3,000 people being saved at Pentecost. And I just want to remind you that God is not a respecter of persons. And if he did it then, I still believe he can do it today. Amen? Here we see a great revival that took place. A great revival that took place. And Acts chapter 2 lays out for us the title of our message this evening, the formula for revival, the formula for revival. I want to know what that formula is. I know when I was a student in school and I couldn't solve a math problem in algebra class, I needed the teacher to review with me the formula. And if I got the formula down, I could solve any problem. My friend, there is a formula in Scripture for how a church can have revival. And when we know what that is, it's then just a question of will we move forward and do it? Will we do it? The formula for revival. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this chapter tonight, we see some great things that happen. Help us to be willing to put in the work that the disciples put in in order to receive the result uh, that the disciples saw. Help us, Lord, to examine our own hearts and lives and remember that revival starts in the heart of each and every one of us. We can't worry about what others do. We can only worry about ourselves. And so, Lord, help us to be honest this evening and willing to change whatever needs to be changed so that revival can find its way into this church and this community and then spread across this country. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Revival is something that many churches talk about but rarely ever see. I wonder how many of you have ever been in a church where a Holy Ghost revival actually broke out. I mean a revival that shakes that church Deeply to its core. People who get right, I mean truly get right. They get right with God and they get right with each other. Sin that is confessed and forsaken. I'm talking about people who take off the facade of fake Christianity and truly get right with God and others. I mean a revival that reaches down into our daily living and alters how we live. A revival that affects our sleeping habits, our eating habits, our entertainment, our work, our family structure, our language, our priorities, our passions, our devotion to God and His church. How many of you have ever been part of revival that swept through a church and then as a result swept through the community like this one here 
in Acts chapter 2. My guess is that none of us have ever seen a revival quite like this one. Why? Why? Maybe the better question is, why not? Why is revival so elusive, so slippery? There are many levels to the answer to that question. But one answer is certain. We don't experience revival because we are content to live without one. We don't experience revival because we're just okay if it doesn't come. What is the formula for revival? What would happen if God's people lived with a fervor? I mean lived with a passion. Lived with a devotion. Totally, 100% obedient to God. Well, first and foremost, if the folks that call White Oak Baptist Church their church would do that, First and foremost, it would shake this church to its core. This church, like every church in America and even in the world, is riddled with disobedient Christians. They only obey when it's convenient. And I'm among that crowd. It would open up the door for the Holy Spirit to have full rule and reign inside the gatherings of this corporate body. Then this church would profoundly shake the community. The gospel would be passionately preached and sinners would deeply repent because of the revival of the church. Let me be clear that something cannot be revived unless it has once lived. Revival does not come to the lost. Revival comes to the saved. But once the saved church is revived, then by default, the lost get saved. By default, the lost get saved. Once a church really gets hold of revival... By default, it just reaches in and deeply affects the community. Let me be clear that, or rather over my years, I have seen um, individuals find revival. I have. I have seen individuals find revival and they get it and they get it down in their core and, and something incredible happens in the life of an individual. I have seen Pockets of a church find revival. I've been part of a, a church where individuals or a group of people in a church found revival and um, uh, something great happened amongst those few people. Maybe it was a Sunday school class or a particular age group within the church that caught fire and true revival was uh, found. I've been in some special meetings 
where revival has broken out. Um, uh, uh, meetings where revival has broken out, where a group of churches sent folks to a gathering. And those people found revival. But what happened was, after that service was over, or that meeting was over, or that camp was over, or that conference was over, those people left and went back to their carnal churches. And the carnality of the people within those churches extinguished the revival fires that were brought home to the church. It's hard to imagine what revival would look like at White Oak Baptist Church in 2021 here in New England. But revival has taken place many, many times throughout the church era. And the first time it took place was right here in Acts chapter number 2. I propose that there is a formula for revival. When the people of God show up to the house of God and respond to the preaching of God, rather the preaching of the Word of God, and seek out the power of God uh, and, and refuse to leave until they have the power of God on their lives, then revival falls on a church. David said in Psalm 85, 6, he said, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? The reality is I can't force you to submit to God and His Word, and you can't force me to do those things. But each of us can commit to do our own part. Let's look at four factors found in Acts 2, where revival broke out as we consider this topic, the formula for revival. Number one, number one, notice God's power. God's power. Boy, God's power is an incredible force. He created the universe with his voice in six literal days. Uh, uh, the, what God's power is able to do is incredible. Uh, within that world that he created, he caused the sun to stand still in the sky for 24 hours. On top of that, he got the whole uh, earth to revolve the wrong direction and created a 15-minute moving of the sun backwards for Hezekiah. There is nothing that God cannot do. A blind eyes are no challenge to him. Even a dead body is no challenge to him. God's power is immense. God's power is incredible. And in Acts chapter 1, God told the disciples, I am giving you the same power that I used to create the heavens and the earth. The same power that raised me from the dead. The same power that washed away your sins. I am putting that power within you to go and reach the world. How do we get that power flowing through us? How do we get that power uh, to bring revival into our church? Well, notice the three-step process. Letter A, the unity of the church. The unity of the church. Look at Acts chapter 2 and look at verse number 1. Go back to verse number 1. Acts 2 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come... Let me just pause there. That word Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost was a feast of first fruits. It was a feast of gathering. Isn't it neat that 3,000 souls were gathered into, into the church on the day of first fruits? On the day they gathered to celebrate a harvest, God sent a great harvest to the church. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, look here, they were all with one accord in one place. One accord in one place. Notice that their spirit was right with each other. Secondly, notice that they were all located in the same place. I just want to address a 
a fib, a lie that many people tell themselves. I can be godly and I don't have to go to church. Do you know that's not true? You know that's not true? Now, those watching online that are at home because of COVID, and I'll just say this, if you're still engaged online this far into the virus, you're clearly dedicated and bought in. Amen? And so thank you for staying. Uh, our, our, our attendance online has waned uh, over the months, and I understand that. But if you're still watching right now, then uh, you're not part of the problem. You're doing your part. Thank you for staying engaged. And if you're watching online and you're checking out our church, we welcome you aboard. We thank you for watching. But let me just say that uh, God wants you to be physically present at church. A whole lot of people say, well, I have church at home with my family. No, you can't have church at home with your family. Now, you can have devotions at home with your family, and you can read the Bible and pray with your wife or your husband or your kids. All that's true. Some people say, well, I walk with God in my bass boat or in my uh, 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 tree stand where I go hunting. And that's true. You can walk with God in a bass boat. You can enjoy nature and worship God for what he's created, and you can sit in a tree stand, and uh, you can pray, and, and pray for hours and hours while you see nothing walk by. Amen? All that's great and fine and dandy, but you cannot replace Church And the Lord bought the church with His blood. He created the church. He's all for the church. And you cannot see revival unless you are part of a church. I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight. You all are here. But let me just say this to you. Never, ever, ever, ever fall into Satan's trap that you can have revival and you can be a godly Christian without attending church. Church is to be a part, a regular part of the believer's life. They're to find a local church and be a part of it. I know there's some good preachers on TV. I hear people tell me they listen to David Jeremiah and Charles Stanley. And listen, those guys can preach circles around me. I don't even pretend to be as good of a preacher as they are. Uh, they, they can preach and they can preach well. But you are to not just listen to online preachers. You are to attach yourself to a local church where the Word of God is preached and you can help each other and let the Word of God grow you and make you into a better Christian. Uh, unity of the church. They came together, but notice it wasn't just enough for them to be together. They got right with each other. Now, I don't want to belabor the point because we've got a lot more of the message left. I'll just quickly throw this in here. I promise if you come to church, you are going to at some point hurt someone's feelings and you are at some point going to get your feelings hurt. I promise you, I promise you that will happen. You will do both. Now, I want to just throw this out there. When you hurt someone's feelings, I bet you want them to forgive you, don't you? Then you better be good at forgiving others that hurt you. Don't you expect others to forgive you. And don't be so arrogant to think that you never have or never will offend someone. Because you're a sinner, and sinners offend. We all must get good at showing grace and humility. Grace and humility. Humility when we offend, and grace when we've been offended. The unity of the church. White Oak Baptist Church, I know of some instances within our church family where some healing has happened over the last several months. And folks have gone to each other and gotten things right with each other. And there is very little that God looks down upon and smiles more on than that right there. Boy, that puts a big smile on God's face when God's brethren get right with each other. The unity of the church. I want to make it clear that Pentecost would have never happened, or the soul saved at Pentecost would have never happened if Acts 2.1 had not happened first. 
Acts 2.41, 3,000 people got saved and baptized. Hey, those 3,000 people would have not been saved and baptized if Acts 2.1 had not happened first. Boy, we want revival at White Oak Baptist Church. We must be in one accord and in one place. Let her be noticed, the unction of the church, the unction or anointing of the church, the filling of the church. And when I say church, I don't mean the church building. I mean the church people, the people that made up that early church, the 120 in that upper room. Uh, We looked at these verses last week, but look at verse 2, 3, and 4 with me of Acts 2. The Bible says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and sat upon each of them, and they were all Filled with the Holy Ghost. We spake about this last week, but this was the first time during the church era that the Holy Spirit of God came down and filled the church. God made this event extra special. Many do not want the Spirit of God. They just want the theatrics of Acts chapter 2. The truth is, the moment you got saved... You got all the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit that you are going to get. First John chapter 2, verse 20, uh, uh, John tells us, But ye have an unction or an anointing or a filling from the Holy One, and ye know all things. The question is not how much do you and I have of the Holy Spirit, but rather how much does the Holy Spirit have of me and you. Uh, uh, we got all the Holy Ghost that we're going to get when we got saved. It is a constant learning to yield and submit and abandon our flesh and let the Spirit of God be the leader of our heart and of our life. My question to you tonight is this, who calls the shot with your emotions? Who leads the way with your behavior? When you get into a difficult situation, do you submit to the Lord? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 18. I just want to be transparent with you this evening. I don't have this all figured out myself. I'm up here preaching it, but you know the preacher sometimes preaches things he's still working on himself. Tonight on the way to church, uh, we had gotten a gift card uh, at Christmas time to Starbucks. I believe that was from the Chippios. Thank you very much for the gift card. I wanted to know you set me up to sin tonight. Did you know that? I made the mistake of stopping at Starbucks on my way to church, and we waited 20 minutes in the drive-thru. 20 minutes. And I like to be punctual. I hate being late. I like being the first one on the property. I don't like not being the first one on the property. And, uh, man, we're stuck. We've got cars in front of us. We've got cars behind us. And, um, and I can feel my blood beginning to boil. I can feel myself starting to get upset. And we got up there to pay, and man, the girl inside. You know when you're running late how it goes? People just don't seem to care. La, 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 la. She kind of moseys over to the window. Sir, that'll be, you know, Starbucks is expensive, right? That'll be, uh, you need to refinance your house and the gift card. Okay, here's my note, and here's the, the gift card. Amen. And I give Angela her drink, and uh, no, your, your gift card covered the, the cost of the coffee. I'm just being facetious there. But uh, uh, we, we pulled away, and you know what I did? I, whoom, I took off out of the Starbucks drive through and I got to the red light. And you know there's a red light there at Bridgeport Avenue. And what you know, I think God was just trying to make, make fun of me. The light turned red right when I got there. And I had to wait through the whole cycle. And I feel my foot tapping the... You know, tapping the, the carpet there. Come on, let's go! And I was tempted to run the red light. And then the Lord said to me, Don't you remember what you're preaching tonight? Don't you remember what you're preaching tonight, Buster? You're talking about the Spirit of God leading the way 
and your flesh is leading the way right now. Hey, I struggle with this sometimes. Anybody else with me right now? Anybody else struggle with this sometimes? Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. The Bible says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice here that uh, you get all the Holy Spirit you're going to get when you get saved, but as you yield and submit and surrender, by the way, just a couple of verses later, submitting yourselves uh, uh, one to another, and, and we're to submit, submit, submit. And as we submit to the Lord, His Spirit takes over Our spirit. His spirit takes over our spirit. Now, I love the Ephesians 5.18. I love this verse. I had a sermon I preached years ago here at the church, and it was entitled uh, something along the lines of parallels between Holy Spirit intoxication and alcohol intoxication. And I talk about what alcohol does to a man, and I talk about what Holy Spirit uh, intoxication or being drunk with the Holy Spirit does to a man. And listen, when you give full control of your spirit uh, to God's spirit, boy, incredible things begin to, begin to happen. You're able to love people you otherwise shouldn't be able to love. You have a joy in your heart through hardships that just doesn't make sense. You have a peace that passes all understanding. You have a patience when the line at Starbucks takes forever. Amen. You have um, a meekness and temperance and you have all the fruits of the Spirit and God takes over and you'll be able to be able to behave in a way that otherwise would not make sense. And if we're going to have revival, then what we need are a group of people that get their heart right with God and each other and a group of people that say, Lord God, Your Holy Spirit is to rule my spirit. And uh, the attributes of the Spirit of God need to be manifested into my life through my submission and my obedience. The unction, the unction of the church. Letter C, notice the utterance of the church. Go back to Acts chapter 2 and let's look back at verse number 4 again. And we notice the very first thing the church did once they received the Holy Spirit was to move their mouth and preach Jesus to anyone and everyone who would listen. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I am not going to address tongue speaking tonight because I devoted a whole sermon to that last Sunday evening, and that is on our YouTube and Facebook page. And so if you really want to know what I believe about tongue speaking, go back and listen to that uh, sermon. But I will say this here, I will say this, that as soon as the Spirit of God filled them, their mouths started moving with the gospel message. You ever been to the doctor to get a physical? I hate physicals. You ever been to the doctor to get a physical? They always pull out that body mass index chart and tell me I'm overweight. I hate that uh, when I go get a physical. Amen? But you ever been uh, at the, the doctor and got a physical? They take out that little rubber hammer and they hit you. Stop hitting me. You know, I, I'm paying you to beat me up. And you're sitting on the table and they hit you right below the kneecap. How many of you ever been tempted just to kick the doctor real hard? Right? Oh, my knee works real well. You know what they're doing? They're checking your reflexes. You know what the reflex of the spirit-filled Christian is? It's to tell people about Jesus. It's to tell people about Jesus. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and I am paraphrasing here, but basically what he said, if I could summarize what he said, he said, I'm going up to the Father... I'll give you my power through the person of the Holy Spirit. Once you get that power, 
Go be a witness. Now this is going to sting for some of you. But we want truth. Amen? To be spirit-filled and spirit-led is to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not sharing, you're not spirit-led. If you're not telling other people about Jesus, then don't tell me the Spirit of God is in charge of your heart and life. It's just not true. It's just not true. We have a bunch of Christians that are playing pretend with God in church. They dress the part, they talk the part, they look the part, but they don't ever, 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 ever utter the name of Jesus to anyone that's lost, ever. And here we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, that when they got the Holy Ghost, the very first thing that happened was they started to move their mouth and tell people about Jesus. If you're not telling people about Jesus, then the Spirit of God really is not in charge of your heart and life. Now, these things are sequential. Unity leads to unction. And unction leads to utterance. Let me say that again. Unity leads to an anointing or an unction, and that unction leads to utterance. When I am unified with God and others, the Spirit of God takes over my heart. When the Spirit of God takes over my heart, by default, I start telling people about Jesus. Number one, God's power. God's power. Number two, notice, the people. The people. Now, who did they start talking to? They started talking to uh, uh, just whoever would listen. Letter A, we see many were curious. Many were curious. Look at uh, Acts chapter 2 and look at verse number 6. The Bible says, Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Again, they're standing there and they're speaking in their normal, natural tongue. Peter and the other 11 uh, apostles are speaking in their natural tongue. And as the words are traveling from their mouths into the ears of those listening, the Spirit of God is changing uh, the, 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 the audio sound and turning it into their language as if he was their own tra- personal translator. And many were curious. Wouldn't you be curious? I think back to when Moses is walking through the desert there on Mount Sinai and he sees the bush that's burning but not consumed. Moses was curious. Wouldn't you be curious? Wouldn't you want to go see the bush that was burning and not, you know, being consumed? Hey, if you were to be with a group of people who spoke six, seven, eight different languages, all right, and uh, you're walking around this group of people, and all of a sudden these guys are up here preaching, and everyone's able to understand them in their own language, wouldn't you want to stop and go find out what was going on? They were curious. And I have found that when we preach Jesus, people become curious. Let her be noticed, all were confused. All were confused. Look back at verse, uh, or rather, look at verse number 7. And they were all amazed and marveled. Verse number 6 tells us that they were confounded. Uh, They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, who we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Look at verse 12. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? What meaneth this? They're standing there, and I don't really think at this point they're catching the content of what's being said. They're just amazed at the event that's happening. Uh, These men are speaking in their Galilean native tongue, but every man is hearing in their own language, and they have no idea what was going on. They were confused. We're looking at the people here. Notice letter C. Some were critical. Some were critical. Look at verse 13. Others mocking. Mocking said, these men are full of new wine. These men are full of new wine. He said, these guys are drunk. You guys want to know how this is happening? These guys up here are drunk. That's how they're able to do this. You know, um, this fits in with this morning's sermon on persecution. If you're going to open up your mouth and preach Jesus then you can expect some pushback. Not everyone's going to buy what you're selling. Not everyone's going to believe what you preach about Jesus. Some people are even going to become hostile toward your message. But they stood up and preached. God was performing a miracle. A big, large crowd gathered. They were confused. A few of them were critical. Notice number three, the preaching. The preaching. The preaching. And so now the stage was set, all right? Through the speaking of tongues, a large crowd had gathered. People were curious. Peter stood up and preached in his own native tongue. And the Spirit of God took his words and translated them into the language of each one listening in. What did Peter preach? Every good sermon seeks to accomplish two things. And Peter's is no different, okay? Uh, Let's see. Letter A, notice Peter's explanation. Peter's explanation. Uh, go uh, Look with me at Acts chapter 2 and look at verse number 14. And His sermon goes all the way down uh, through about verse 41, or rather verse 40, uh, with the people interrupting him sort of toward the end of his message there. But let's go to Acts chapter 2, and I want to show you a few things here. We're not going to study his sermon in great depth, but more just kind of quickly uh, cover it. I'll make some observations as we go. And uh, notice uh, in uh, verse 14 and 15, Right off the bat, he defends the disciples. Look at verse 14. Peter stands up. The Bible says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifting up his voice, and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Hey, guys. We just got going with our day. There's no way these guys are drunk, okay? Your whole thing about them being drunk, that's not possible. We've only been awake for just a couple of hours. And so right off the bat, he defends his buddies. And then verse 16 through 21, he validates the tongue speaking by pointing back to the book of Joel. All right? Look down at verse 16. The Bible says, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. 
flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And all my servants and all my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Uh, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We could spend weeks just studying uh, that passage right there. But what Peter was doing here is he was telling them, hey, what's going on right here with everyone being able to speak and uh, understand in their own language? Part of what's going on here was uh, prophesied by Joel in the Old Testament. Now, why is Peter doing this? Why is he pointing back to the prophets? In a moment, we'll see he also points back to David and the book of Psalms. Why is he using this, these scriptural references? And the answer is he's speaking to a group of devout Jews. These devout Jews had come from all over the world to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And so they knew the Torah. They knew the Old Testament. And so he's using the Old Testament to point them to the current day events that were happening. All right. And so 16 to 21, he points to Joel to validate exactly uh, what's going on. All right. Verse 22 to 36, he just preaches Christ. And he quotes or references Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 and verse number 1. He just preaches Jesus. And let me say that preaching Jesus is one of the best things you can do. Let's let's look what Paul has to say here to these folks who had just crucified Jesus a few days, uh, 50 days prior. Uh, The Bible says in verse 16, but this is that, or rather, I'm sorry, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. What a great topic to preach. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did uh, by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. I picture the people maybe beginning to bow their head in guilt as they realize that they are the ones that were guilty for sending Jesus to the cross. They didn't do their part to stand up to the council. 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should um, uh, be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. The next several verses reference back to Psalm 16. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer uh, thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt um, make make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. So he's talked about Joel. Now he's going to talk about David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne or David's throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ 
that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, uh, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath showed for this, uh, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord shall uh, said unto my Lord, and this is Psalm 110.1, uh, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstools. Here he points back and says, Hey, listen, all this was predicted in the book of Psalm by David. That David's son would come and he would live and he would die and he would suffer and uh, his soul would be dipped in hell and then he would raise up from the dead and beat corruption. And Listen, you all were responsible in part for putting Jesus on that cross, but he has risen from the dead. He is alive forevermore. Look with me, if you would, at verse number 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. These people are listening to this. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye this taking place. Now, let's just say that they're on Solomon's porch, which would have been the porch outside of the temple, okay? So they're standing on this porch. The 12 of them are sprawled out across this porch. Peter is standing in the middle, and he has, let's see, uh, five, or, or five on one side maybe and six on the other side, and he's there in the middle, and they're all sort of preaching where different people can hear, but Peter is the one that's preaching the loudest and, and, and gathered the most attention, and he's preaching in his Galilean tongue, and everyone there is hearing in their own language, and I just imagine everyone looking around, and I wonder if you spoke more than one language, if you could switch back and forth in your mind to which one you heard. I don't know that, but I'm left to wonder, right? And there he is preaching away, and everyone is listening, and he talks to them about Jesus having performed miracles, and Jesus having been arrested and brutally murdered and raising from the dead. And he says to them, now, do you understand that this Jesus is Christ and Lord? Peter laid out a great explanation that appealed to their knowledge of the Old Testament. But every sermon, every good sermon, seeks to do two things, both explain and letter B, exhort. Peter's exhortation. Exhortation. Okay, now, folks that are listening to this message, thousands of Jews gathered there that day from all countries of the globe, what will you do with this message about Jesus? Look at 37. Acts 2.37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I imagine here they felt quite guilty for what they had done to Jesus. I imagine maybe their heads hanging a little bit low. Their shoulders are stooped a little bit. Okay, guys. Boy, you nailed us. Now, before we continue on with 38... Do you understand that Jerusalem was ripe for revival? Ripe to receive Jesus? Why? This was the crowd that had watched him die. They buried him in a tomb right outside town. And he stood up 
from the dead. That is amazing. And I can see folks coming into their homes over the next 40 days and saying, I saw Jesus in town today. I saw Jesus out by the Sea of Galilee today. I saw Jesus up on Mount Olivet today. I I saw Him with my own two eyes. I was there to watch Him die. I saw the soldier plunge the spear into his side and the water run out of him. I watched him take him off the cross and I watched Joseph of Arimathea wrap him up to be laid in the tomb. And that same man, I saw him today with my own two eyes. These Folks were ready for revival because all of them there had either seen Jesus alive or knew someone who had seen Jesus alive. And these disciples stand up and they preach with unity. They preach with unction. And boy, they preach with utterance. They preach with boldness. They boldly proclaim through the power of the Holy Ghost. And these people bowed their head and say, yes, we know we're guilty What do we do? They were pricked at their conscience. Look at verse 38. Peter says unto them, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many of the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Peter is saying here, you know who Jesus is. You watched Him, or at least heard credible testimony of how He performed great miracles and wonders. You all took Him and crucified Him, but He didn't stay dead. Three days later, He rose up from the dead. Now, what will you do with Jesus? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, some have heard this verse, Acts 2:38. Some have read this verse uh, to mean that we must both repent and be baptized in order to be saved. And I want to say that you do not need to be baptized to go to heaven. And someone says, "Well, Acts 2:38 couldn't be more clear. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It says it right there." Pastor, what do we do with Acts 2.38? Well, let me just say, first of all, we never, ever, ever shy away from the Bible. Ever. Even passages that might seem a little bit difficult to explain, we never shy away from the Bible. All right. Now, there's a principle I would encourage you to follow when it comes to difficult verses. All right. Here's the principle. We never explain away the obvious with the obscure. We never, ever, ever explain away the obvious with the obscure. Rather, we understand the obscure through the lens of the obvious. All throughout Peter's preaching in the rest of the book of Acts, um, all of the rest of Peter's teaching in First and Second Peter, nowhere else does Peter say that we need to be baptized in order to be saved. In fact, all throughout uh, the teachings of Paul and the other apostles, this is the only time it seems to say that. And so if I have a list of 50 or 60 places that do not say we need to be baptized to get saved, and I have one that seems to say that, am I going to build a whole religion and doctrine off of one? I probably shouldn't do that. Now, pastor, there has to be an explanation, and there is. 
the word for. Or look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent, then, then Peter saith unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at that next word, that three-letter word, for. For the remission of sins. That word for, um, uh, right there, uh, in the Greek, is often, most oftentimes, translated on account of or on the basis of. On account of or on the basis of. All right. Uh, other times in the New Testament, when you see that Greek word, it's translated in other places on account of or on the basis of. Go back to chapter 2, verse 38 with me. It says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, on account of or on the basis of the remission of sins. The reason why you get baptized is because your sins have been remissed or forgiven. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Baptism is an act that follows that, that salvation. Now let me also give you some historical context to Acts 2.38. You'll hear me say this regularly, that when you don't understand a passage in the Bible, you need to get context. Context within the passage, but also historical context. Where did baptism begin? You all know where baptism begun? Baptism begun with John the Baptist. Baptism was not around before John the Baptist. You don't find baptism anywhere in the Old Testament. Anywhere. Baptism began with John the Baptist. He came on the side, on the, on the scene rather, and he said, be baptized, be baptized, be baptized. And then he said, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the earth. And then he baptized Jesus. And what did Israel do with John the Baptist? For the most part, they rejected him. They rejected him. Here Peter is saying, you all have taken Jesus... And you've crucified him. And you've taken his cousin and you've allowed him to be beheaded. Here he's saying, not only do you need to make a decision to trust Christ, you need to go all the way and get in that baptistry water and identify with Christ. Identify with Christ. Turn your back on Judaism and put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And then make it public and associate with the baptism of John, but do it in the name of Jesus. I also find it interesting that uh, 40 years after Christ rose from the dead, uh, that, that, that the, the temple would be destroyed. At the, that 40 years, that 40 years, the Israelites wandered 40 years in the desert while a new generation arose. Here, Jesus was giving that same 40 years for a new generation of believers to arise before that temple would be destroyed, before the animal sacrifices in that temple would be stopped. He says, repent, turn from your unbelief, turn from your unbelief which rejected your Messiah and put him to death. Now that you've done that, make it public. You rejected John's baptism, now be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 37 tells us that they were pricked in their hearts. You know what preaching should do? It should prick your heart. It should prick your heart. I attended a church in uh, Maryland right before I moved up here, worked on staff as an assistant pastor. It, it was one of the coldest churches I've ever been a part of. The pastor there would preach the Bible. And the same two, three, four people would come to the altar every time. But for the most part, no one came forward. They'd sit there, 
They'd have a bless me if you can attitude. Almost like they were just doing church out of religious obligation. Pastor would get and preach a powerful sermon. Powerful sermon. And the people just weren't moved. And I often wondered there. And it wasn't just, you know, they didn't want to come to the altar. They'd stand and, you know, I, I'm sorry if this comes across as judgmental. But I would look around the room while I'm in, in the invitation. And the people just had a cold look on their face. It didn't even appear that they were even praying in their pew, just kind of standing there, waiting for the service to end. And maybe so they were praying, and and I just wasn't able to tell it. But you could just feel a coldness in the room. I love White Oak Baptist Church. I love, love, love White Oak Baptist Church. And I love that when I stand up and preach the Bible here, it's very normal for this altar to be filled with people whose consciences and hearts have been pricked, and they're making a decision for the Lord. White Oak Baptist Church, let's never lose that. Let's never lose that. Uh, You come with your heart prepared and let the Spirit of God prick your heart and make decisions that show your growth. We've seen, number one, God's power. Number uh, number two, the people. Number three, the preaching. Notice number four, the penitence. The penitence. Letter A, notice their conversion. And for the younger ones in the room, that word penitence means repentance. All right, repentance. It starts with a P. So that's why I used it. It's alliterated, amen? Their penitence, their conversion. Look at verse 41 with me. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now I've been left to wonder that many of those people were from uh, lived in other parts of the world. 3,000 people joined the church that day. There had to have been far more people that got saved and baptized and did not join the church that day because they had to go home and start their own church. But 3,000 local Jews that gathered that day as Peter and the other apostles preached got saved that day. Boy, that must have been amazing to see. This, this verse right here offers us one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Christ. For for you see, this uh, revival took place in the very town where Jesus had been buried. Furthermore, these people were saved because Peter and the other disciples preached with God's power. Revival would sweep through Jerusalem and uh, once, once and only once the disciples yielded to God's Spirit, got things right with each other, and proclaimed truth everywhere they went. 3,000 people got saved. White Oak Baptist Church, I don't want to miss the opportunity to make the point here. To the degree that the disciples were right to each other, to that same degree, their message reached the lost. As we get things right with each other here at this church, and we get things right in our own hearts with God, we become far more effective in our witness to the community. Many, many churches never see a single conversion. They'll go years without seeing anyone get saved. You know why? Because they're playing church. They're playing church. They're showing up on Sundays and they know how to dress and talk. They know how to say the right things. They know how to open their Bibles and nod their head during the preaching. But they're not right with God. They're not led by His Spirit. And they're not right with each other. There's infighting that happens in churches. And all the while, the world out there is needing the gospel message. And they die and go to hell because the church 
can't get things right with God and others. As the disciples got things right with each other and got things right with God, boy, their message was potent and powerful to a lost and dying world around them. Their conversions. I love to see Brother Kyle going out and seeing people saved. I, and hear testimony of it as we did tonight. I love to hear of others of you that go out and come back and share Jesus, how He used you to see people saved. And that's a sign the Spirit of God is at work in this place. I do believe this. It could be a whole lot greater. It could be a whole lot more. We want a revival that sweeps through Stratford and reaches New England and brings America back to God. It is time that American Christians quit pointing the finger at politicians and blaming them for this country being a mess. This country is not a mess because of politicians. This country is a mess because Christians are a mess. This country is a mess because Christians are phonies. This country is a mess because we're playing games with God in the Bible. And we're paying for it in, in, in Washington, D.C. We're paying for it in Hartford at the State House. Christians must get their hearts right and quit worrying about politics. Quit worrying about everything that's going on in the political sphere. Let's get our hearts right with God. And people will start getting saved in groves. And as people get saved, this country will turn itself around. Boy, we need a Holy Ghost revival of Christians who are filled with God's power and live their life accordingly. Letter B, notice, notice their continuance. These people didn't just get saved and go home and live about their merry way. No, they continued. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We see these people genuinely got saved. The Bible says, and they continued. These are the converts. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many uh, wonders and signs were done by the apostles. What happened? These people got saved and then they bought all the way in to God and church and the apostles' doctrine. They were a bunch of dry sponges looking to be filled with solid doctrine and grow and grow and grow, and they continued. Let her see, and lastly notice, their continuity. Their continuity. And look at verse number 44 of Acts 2. The Bible says, And all that believed were together, together, and had all things common, common. And look here, sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. I want to pause right here at 45. I brought up a need that one of our church members has, a financial need, a medical need. And I asked the church to raise $15,000 to help pay for that. You know what I'm asking you to do is right here in Acts chapter 2. These folks went as far as selling their own property in order to meet other people's needs. They, they, they sold what they had to sell in order to make sure the needs of the people were, were met. Pastor, is this socialism? No, socialism is forced on you by the government. This was done on a volunteer level. Volunteer level. Hey, when Christians take care of their own, God is pleased. And that's one sign of revival. It's one sign of revival. By the way, we still have a little bit more money we need to raise. Not a lot, a little bit more money we need to raise. We need several of you to still deep, dig deep and give big so that this need can be met. We're about halfway to our goal, and we need to get the other half of that money in here so that this need can be met. And if you've not yet given, boy, give. And let me just remind you, you cannot outgive God. Whatever you put in the plate, God's going to give back to you 
in some way. Mark that as benevolence on the envelope and uh, watch God do a great work in your life. He may not replace it with money. He may replace it with some other blessing, but I promise you he'll give it back to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Look at verse 46. And they continuing daily, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. As a result of this, uh, and as a result of all of this, what happened? Look at the rest of the verse. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Do you see that God adds to a healthy church? God adds to a healthy church, a church that takes care of their own a church that genuinely loves each other, a church that gets their hearts right one, one with another, a church that abides in the doctrines of the apostles, a church that is really concerned about growth. When God sees a healthy church, He adds daily to the church. He adds to His church. The disciples in the upper room created the culture that would permeate that early church. Watch this. Where did the church and the new church members learn unity and generosity? You know where they learned it from? The 120 that started in that upper room. It started there as a culture. And as people began to join the church, that unity and generosity flowed naturally because God's grace had deeply altered their lives. True repentance brings about conversion, continuance, and continuity. Let's finish the sermon here. What is the formula for revival? The title of our sermon today. If you have that half sheet outline, the formula for revival are the first three subpoints of point one. Revival comes when God's power falls. The unity of the church. Everybody look up here at me for a minute. Have you gotten everything right between you and your brothers and sisters here at church? God's not going to send revival until we get our hearts right with each other. If you are the offending party, you need to find humility in your heart to get it right. If you're the offended party, you need to find grace to forgive. That's the only way it's going to work. I've preached about unity a lot over the last year. And sometimes we need a hammer to hit us, hit that rock many times before the rock finally cracks. I'm not preaching unity for selfish reasons. I'm preaching it because it's what God wants. That's what God wants. I wonder how many people will be in heaven one day because White Oak Baptist Church gets fully right with each other. I wonder how many people will go to hell one day if White Oak Baptist Church can't get unity figured out. Unity. Unity. Unity leads to unction. Holy Ghost filling. Does the Holy Spirit call the shots in your day-to-day living? The fruits of the Spirit, are they manifested on the tree of your life? You see, because when that happens, utterance is natural. We just can't help but tell people about Jesus. 
And when people see a lifestyle of a Christian, and our words are backed up with the power of God, folks come flooding into the church and they want to get saved. And that's how a revival happens. That's how a revival happens. How about it tonight, Christian? Do you want revival? It's going to cost you something. You're going to have to change some things. But boy, it's worth it. I can't force you to change. and You can't force me to change. But I can do my part. and You can commit to do your part. Lord, I pray tonight, Spirit of God, you'd move in this room. Oh God, convict hearts. Convict hearts as you have convicted my heart. Lord, do a great work. Do an inexplicable work. Lord, send revival to White Oak Baptist Church. Send revival to the people in this room. Lord, this city didn't put you on the cross directly. This city didn't have you resurrect from the dead right next door. But this city is lost in spiritual darkness. And it is hungry for the gospel. Help us to be ready to share. Help us to be ready to live. Lord, send revival like it's never been seen before at this church. In Jesus' name.